Hello and welcome to the AI Artifacts Podcast, a podcast about the scale, the scope, and the steady drumbeat of artificial intelligence developments in the world today. I'm Brian Warmoth with my co-host Sarah Luger, PhD, for a journey under the hood, beneath the hive, and into the fray to see where opportunities are emerging, what's getting reshaped, and who's really saying what in the ocean of buzzwords flying around right now. Welcome back for episode two of the AI Artifacts Podcast. I am your co-host, Brian Warmoth, and my co-host, Sarah Luger, is right here. Sarah, good to see you again. Great to see you, Brian. Thank yeah. you for spearheading this adventure. <laughs> it's been fun. I, we had a really good episode last week. I hope everybody enjoyed getting to know it. We've got a, a former colleague and friend on today for the interview. It's going to be wonderful. Um, this week, also, we're going to kick it off with news that we found really interesting we, we're going to try to keep this timely at the front of the episode uh so did you hear the new beatles track that came out uh, it's called now and then i heard about 10 seconds of it uh i i think i have been anticipating this mm-hmm. i think it's going to be a smash hit i think my uh parents are going to with their generation, probably make it number one. And although they said it was the only one that the Beatles were um, putting out, I would be surprised if it doesn't have more. It, it could be. I think it could be the first of many, and it could open other bands up to that. What do you What do you think of my? Yeah, I mean, there, um, there's uh, two, two reactions. Yeah, two reactions. One, you know, there's always a vault somewhere. There's always something oh. that somebody forgot about in a folder, a file, a stack of tapes. There's, there's always something, right? And the, it's I, I treat this the same way I treat an announcement that a band is breaking up forever, or this is the last tour ever, the or the last tour. live performance <laughs> ever. It's always the last until there's another last one, right? But yeah, I heard it last night. I have some friends who are huge Beatles fans who are really into this. I mean, I love the Beatles. I, you know, I'm fascinated the by them. Right, like you know, I'm I would, in the in the like Beatles versus Stones conversation. I probably lean more to, towards the Stones, like listening preference wise. But um, to me, the Beatles were always sort of like a historical pop cultural artifact. First, I got into them when they um, released the I forget they back in like was it the '90s when those like older recordings got re released, and I found it really interesting watching the documentaries and getting into them as personalities before I got into the music, but the music I love by the Beatles, I do really, really love this track for me does not rank in the pantheon of greatest Beatles recordings by any stretch of the imagination, which like is an unfair bar to hold things to. Right. I mean, it it is the Beatles historically, but it is interesting that they used AI and here's why we're talking about it to Mm -hmm. take Mm -hmm. recordings that John Lennon left behind that were, as I understand it from the reporting, I'll put a link into the show notes here. Uh, They were, the recordings were not of the quality and nature that they could separate John Lennon's vocals easily to make them useful for producing this full track. So AI enabled them to do some of this and like the remaining Beatles uh, worked with this, uh, you know, so it is, for me, it was a nice meditation to listen to, and it plucked at my heartstrings getting to hear John Lennon's voice again. I enjoyed that, and you know, I'll, I'll listen to it again. It's not going to be um, up there with, with my favorite Beatles tracks of all time, but it doesn't need to be, and I you know, think it's fair to put that pressure on it. Uh, you know, I, Other people I've talked to 
loved it more than I did. And I, I appreciate that for them because I, I do appreciate the people who love the Beatles more dramatically, more to a greater extent than the Stones. But I appreciate the Stones more when it's a you know one to one comparison. I hear you. I will also listen to the rest of it. Um, I'm kind of a Revolver album centric yeah. Beatles fan. Heck yeah. And I, I actually, th- this whole conversation is making me really excited about what may be in Prince's vault. So Prince was notoriously mm. prolific and his collaborations as well as uh, mentorship with other artists has produced some incredible music. So maybe the uh, success which mm-hmm. I expect for this will um, will garner attention to other vaults, as you said. Yeah, I, very cool. It, undoubtedly, it's a first introduction to something that I think we'll see a lot more of. You can't the way you know estates exist to figure out how to monetize what's left behind by wonderful wonderful performers like the Beatles and you know Prince. I love, love Prince. Love some Prince. And like, I love Prince. That was a hell yeah. of a loss. Uh, uh, 2016 was a terrible year yeah right let's let's put a pin in yeah let's move on hey let's dive into this yeah. week so Sarah, <laughs> what, what was the biggest news in ai for you this week well clearly regulation mm-hmm. but i think that that's a highly contextualized story that's been um it's been slow rolling for some time mm-hmm. you know if you remember in the spring the uh, White House put out kind of a, a crowdsourcing call to action saying, hey, could you use this website to give us ideas on, on what you'd like, um, you know, what your concerns are and ideas around regulation? Just to contextualize so for I the readers was... too, Biden signed an executive order on Monday, right? And that's yes. that was the first of, of two big moments in regulation news this week. So I just wanted to make that clear. Exactly. And so, and so in the spring... He precipitated that with a, hey, this is this is coming and we're we're open to insights from the community, which mm-hmm. which was an interesting. Which is a little bit unusual, but also speaks to the fact that chat GPT, open AI's blockbuster product has made perhaps the average American a lot more cognizant of the role that AI could have in their life and impressed, but also a bit fearful. So one of the, the uh, things that I thought was most interesting about the announcements and regulation is that the NIST uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology is going to be the enforcer here. We are going to be looking at a national level Um, at oversight of models that could pose a threat to national security. Clearly, that's that's core. But I think it's going to be very interesting to see, is national security media? Is it, um, you know, corporate, uh, uh, corporate competition? You know, there's there's a lot of ways to interpret that. I, I think anything around more clarity and transparency is good for AI adoption in general. But this the focus of the government's uh, regulation is going to be on insurance privacy, equity, and making sure that civil rights are protected. Now, even those three tenets are hard for us to do as a, a democracy on a day-to-day basis. So I think sure. this is going to be a real challenge. And living in California, where there is existing regulation, as well as watching the recent GDPR 
um, implementation that the United States has um, has effectively jumped through and and you know increased the quality of uh, privacy protections and, and data management. I think this is really going to be about implementation. How is this? Um, how is the enforcement? Do you want to underscore that? Yeah, I, I gave G- you a G- lot of information. Well, yeah, I, wanna, I just want to underscore, we're talking about GDPR, right? Yeah. That that's originated in the European, yeah. that's a European Union exactly. set of regulations. So, um, you know, the yeah. United States doesn't per se have GDPR, but it's it, the thing is that if you're a company, so this is like my aside, like communications person stepping in. If you have GDPR in the EU that you have to be compliant to and you're doing business in the United States, if you have people in Europe who are accessing and working with you, it there are contexts in which you have to be able to to work with, uh, you know, meeting GDPR specifications. Compliance, yeah, Compliance, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is also this is a great point. Let me let me reiterate what you just yeah. said. Yeah. There has been recent data privacy regulation that started in the European Union, or at least was implemented first in the European Union that has cascading effects to global technology companies that are handling data. Why? Because as many of us know, the internet is somewhat, but not completely regionally controlled. Yeah. Right. The the borders get squishy in many places. Sometimes it's not squishy, Exactly. but even when the borders come up and you have like the Great Firewall come up, there are still porous areas yeah. and roundabout loops and ways that things interact. Exactly. Yeah. But if I'm in Europe and I'm using a software and that software company is primarily based in the United States, there are rules about where is my data being stored while mm-hmm. I am in Europe accessing that software. Yeah. So there's standards and formalities that many tech companies in the United States, I think, found annoying. But I think a few years on, they made us all look at and transparency transparently analyze where's our data being stored? How are we processing and handling it? It was like an audit. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I think that that occasional audits are absolutely okay. So... Mm -hmm. If yeah, and I, we'll get into this too. I think we'll have yeah. an episode coming up where we're going to get even deeper into these data implications. Oh, we're totally going to get deep, deeper. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let so, me let, let, let's follow that coming. up, and I want to note the, the <laughs> what was it called the Bletchley Decora- Declaration that yeah. occurred this week and this past week in Great Britain too. Yeah. So I think um, what the main uh, so. So obviously the EU has shown itself as um, as kind of a thought leader and there's a little bit of jockey and I think the Biden administration is kind of say, hey, we, we care too. And uh, so the EU has some guiding principles that came out of the that meeting in Bletchley Par- uh, Park in the UK, in England. And 28 countries in was... the European Union all involved talking about AI safety. Yes. Yes. And one of the things I thought was most interesting was that they discussed a voluntary code of conduct for AI developers. So ideas around this had been kicked around um, for some time, but AI developers are emerging as a very 
well compensated, uh, powerful group and other well compensated, powerful groups often have board certification, ongoing education to maintain good standing in a community. Um, you know, even if you look at, say, Microsoft or Google certifications, there are different ways that we can that we can signal to each other, hey, I understand what is current and I um, at adhering, am adhering to best practice while I, I develop products. And I think that that was a very interesting um, way to, to actionably support better AI principles. Yeah. And I think, let me... Uh, you know, just agree with some of what you said before in that, you know, it, to me, this seemed in both cases, although I think the EU might have been a little bit more forceful in, in the in the in the European countries that, that were involved in this. But uh, what I saw this week in the executive order was really a lot of value statements and directional guidance coming out. Uh, I think it is, I mean, and it does have consequences, especially, you know, if you look at companies that have, tech companies in particular that have to do business with the government, there are now consequences for continuation of some of this business if certain expectations are not met. However, as you said, we're going to have to see how some of these key vocabulary words get defined and recognized and, and what gets enforced in what ways going forward. And I think there are a lot of question marks over that. Although we now do have a basis for that conversation and that enforcement to begin taking place as things roll forward. Exactly. Right? And if you look at the current administration and their enforcement of what they consider monopolistic, you know, antitrust uh, behavior, they are more aggressive than past administrations, which incidentally touches another big topic story I'd like to cover this week. Yeah. May I? Yeah, please, by all means. So uh, we are having a proxy war in the AI space between Google and Microsoft. The announcement this week was that Google is investing $500 million now and up to $2 billion. Up to $2 billion. In, yeah. Up to $2 billion yeah. in, the, um, in the near future on OpenAI's rival Anthropic, yeah. right? So Anthropic is a rival to OpenAI. Google is known for its search. It's, it's most, uh, it's the backbone of its financial, uh, um, of its offering mm -hmm. search. And mm -hmm. with Microsoft's collaboration with OpenAI, Microsoft invested heavily in OpenAI initially. They had incredible success with Bing search over the, the past year. So, and let's, let's have, underscore that this... Amazon has already <laughs> invested 4 billion in Anthropic too. Or committed oh, to invest. Yeah. So, so this is where it gets more exciting. Yeah. Exactly. So to reiterate, we've got OpenAI and, and Microsoft. They're, they're partnered up. Now we have Google and Anthropic partnered up. The Amazon has also invested up to $4 billion in uh, Anthropic. That was announced last month. Well, why is this so interesting? It's interesting because just this week, Amazon announced its AWS um, numbers, 
and Google Cloud Services is talking about their numbers. So they're in competition. Amazon is doing okay. Google has had um, some some recent successes, but Microsoft also sells cloud compute. And mm-hmm. what we have here is a situation where AI services are going to become a line item in an ongoing large-scale business contract between the big companies, and these may be the Procter & Gamble's, the uh, Bechtel's, the, the companies that you do not maybe think of. Let me force you out by saying this is going to get touched on in the interview we do later in this episode. So I, this is a good Oh, oh it is. Yeah. It is. So, so companies, Fortune 500 companies are going to look at their existing contracts with these uh, technology providers and say, how can I bundle? What services do you have that I can uh, increase or add AI to my product? If they have a contract with Anthropic and, or they've had a previous contract with Google, this makes it easier. They can also upsell. This is just business. Now, I think that the maneuvering to have all these services in one um, one offering is very smart. I also think that the proxy war aspect is very interesting. But I would like to note that I'm excited about Google this is. <laughs> I am. I'm it's excited true. about this. But but there's a lot going on here. So Google is in some of these antitrust cases right now. Uh, they also laid off a voice assistant a voice assistant mm-hmm. team this week. Um, so it was actually technical staff that mm-hmm. had been on the BARD team. I missed this. Amazon Amazon did this recently in this past year as well, where they're looking quite, you know, there's there's a, a lot of analysis of where money has been spent and where money is coming in. And so this re- reshuffling, as well as the kind of reshuffling of search, like Bing, I, oh, I, I forgot about Bing. You know, Bing is a word that, that might not be a verb yet, but it's it's getting a lot more attention. So I think that there's parallels in Amazon and Google's behavior. And I also think that the relationship between Microsoft and OpenAI is one to watch. It sounds like they are partners, but obviously um, OpenAI has done phenomenally well and there's opportunity for rivalry in all of these relationships. It certainly is. You know, it's it's they have a strategic interest in them right now. Well, this is also yes. something that comes up later in the in the interview we play. Um, but let me let me say something and then get into the the next section uh, of, of the podcast here. But what you're saying is timely too, because uh, you know Microsoft launched their 365 Copilot offering at least on a limited exactly. basis, right? Um, and they expect to see that generate as much as ten billion dollars by um, what was the year on that? Uh, twenty twenty six, right? So there's big money involved. And to what you're saying, any of these companies that have competing cloud services, you know, like Amazon obviously does, and like Google obviously does, with you know Microsoft's full suite of everything they do, um, they have a vested interest in figuring out how do we defend against this before Microsoft beats us and their products just start eating our lunch across the board. So yeah, exactly. It's a big story. Big story. Let me um, 
get into our our weekly feature that I have prepared for you today. Let's see if I can, I'm going to try a little bit harder to stump you this time, and I've balanced out the content, but uh, let's dive into two truths and lay AI. Uh, So for the listeners who didn't catch us last week, this is two real stories and one story that's generated by uh, AI, and uh, this is a test for you, the listeners, as well as uh, Sarah, my my gracious co-host here, um, to, to see if she can spot it. All right. And uh, I'll dive in thematically with something we just talked about. All right. Here's number one. Joe Biden grew more worried about AI after watching Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, says White House deputy. President Joe Biden signed an executive order on Monday establishing new standards and security measures regarding artificial intelligence. Deputy White House Chief of Staff Bruce Weed told the Associated Press that AI is an issue of great importance to the president, who was impressed and alarmed after seeing fake AI images of himself and learning about the terrifying technology. Uh, according to Reed, Biden's concern about AI also grew after watching Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1 at Camp David. If I hadn't already been con- if he hadn't already been concerned about what could go wrong with AI before that movie, he saw plenty more to worry about, said Reed, who watched the film with Biden. All right, so there's number one. Now, number two, is my coworker AI? Bizarre product reviews leave Gannett staff wondering. A smattering of articles recently discovered on Reviewed, Gannett, Gannett's product review site is prompting an increasingly common debate. Was this made with artificial intelligence tools or by a human? The writing, it's stilted, repetitive, and at times nonsensical. Before buying a product, you need to first consider the fit, light, settings, and additional features that each option offers, reads one article titled, Best Waste Lamp of 2023. Now, um, there's number two. Number three, Playdate Pal launches AI-powered subscription software to facilitate Playdate matches for preschoolers. In a bid to simplify the daunting task of arranging playdates for preschoolers, Playdate Pal, a pioneering AI startup, has unveiled its revolutionary subscription software designed to match four- and five-year-old children with compatible playmates. With an increasingly hectic lifestyle impacting the ability of parents to organize meaningful social interactions for their young ones, Playdate Pal's innovative platform aims to streamline the process, ensuring that children foster early social connections in a fun and nurturing environment. Okay, so there's number three. Okay. Yeah. I, so I think number one is true. That's the Biden Mission Impossible, in part because that has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, I feel like this is like, wait, wait, don't tell me. And if I haven't read the news this week, I'm on, a, I'm on my back foot. I always but think about what this think... one I'm going through, and I, I know I'm never going to catch everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I need to up my, um, my news consumption. But I think that that is true. And... I think that that's and that we've all had those experiences watching media saying, "Oh my goodness, this is really good." You know, this this technology is really good. And it could have been uh, Jurassic Park, you know, twenty five years ago. It could, you know, there's there's always been those moments. So I think that is true. I think the coworker AI. I think that is true. And I think that's true because humans write stilted and weird language, and that's what makes us human. And also, it's not like someone has Grammarly working to make everything kind of sound smooth and good. But I think that the playdate for preschoolers is not true because based on my knowledge of preschoolers, which is cursory at best, 
I think a good matching algorithm would actually be a two-sided marketplace that includes the parents. Because what I've learned from friends is that it's great if your kids get on, but it's more important that the kids and parents get on for full, like, the circle of life. All right. So am good. I, am I incorrect? Yeah, you, you nailed it again. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually like more, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with your, your reasoning to get there too. Oh, do you, do you like my reasoning? Yeah. Is this, is this part of the show your work? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I love and it. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even talk about like four and five year olds with, you know, like, do they have, do they have rights, but yeah. who cares if the kids get along, if the parents are, you know, like one's in the, you know, vintage country. The other one's into new country. I mean, this could be, that's good. That's could be fighting, fighting words, right? Yeah, you did it. I, the first one was from Variety uh, about Mission Impossible. I'll put the links in the show notes for everybody too. The, the second one was from a story from The Verge. And the last one was created by ChatGPT. So bravo. You're two, for two you're, you're two and O <laughs> on this. I'm, I'm O and two, but uh, we'll come back next week and I'll, I'll try to make it a little trickier. All right. Great. Thank you, everybody. And we're going to transition right now to send you into a really interesting interview that Sarah and I did a few days ago. Hope you enjoy. We've got an exciting interview for a few reasons today. Uh, Sarah, do you want to introduce our guest? I would love to, Brian. Thank you. Please be introduced to Thomas Hutrick. He is a data science practitioner with experience in AI infrastructure, a background working with advertising, media, specifically gaming data, as well as a deep knowledge of the metaverse and emerging generative AI technologies. Thank you, Thomas, for joining us. I want, I want to personally thank you because uh, as we're starting out recording this podcast series, we're using some tech for the first time and we're figuring out what our setup should be. So you're, you're very much uh, jumping in and helping us learn these things with a friendly face on the other end. Not that we won't have friendly faces in the other episodes, but uh, we already know Thomas and he's, uh, he's, a, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I thought he'd be really good to step in here and talk a little bit about some of the things people using AI don't always think about, which is everything going on on the back end of this process for training data, for um, uh, all the computer processing that takes place, and the maybe industries and spaces that this impacts uh, that uh, I think are very, very uh, relevant for people to know about as we'll, as we'll discuss today. So let me ask you, Thomas, uh, have you used any AI applications this morning? Uh, this morning, no, but apart from, I mean, the one we're recording on, which is using all sorts of uh, bells and whistles to uh, uh, improve our audio, I would I would be guessing. So that's that's the one we're currently using. Other than that, I mean, uh, developments are, are obviously uh, very fast these days and uh, new products and new models come out every day. I think there's seldom, uh, as an individual, uh, seldom t- time to test them all. I, I appreciate it on the audio. It's, it's amazing what you can get from a remote podcast recording that you couldn't when, when I did my first podcast, which was 2015-ish, 14-ish or something, I think. Here, here's something I want to contextualize for people. Like, it, wh- How would you compare key differences now versus, let's say, six, seven years ago, which is not that long ago? In, in tech timelines, yeah. Um, what are the big differences? It's definitely, yeah. Well, it's definitely uh, from the back end and the, the the demands of deploying those systems have, have changed in terms of the entire uh, organizational and infrastructure side of things. Where machine learning traditionally was uh, before the era of cloud that really began about six seven years ago in terms of enterprise deployment, 
relegated to uh, a physical uh, machine uh, that had some proprietary, proprietary uh, hardware uh, that was able to crunch numbers and data uh, uh, with uh, also physical databases uh, associated with it. Uh, and then everything moved to the cloud and compute became distributed. Uh, that, that obviously uh, led to the specialization of hardware and this discovery that uh, the hardware that was made specifically for uh, graphics acceleration, uh, GPUs, uh, was actually also very, very good at helping crunch the numbers uh, in the way that machine learning algorithms uh, are manipulating data. Uh, and that, that in turn led to what we see today, where uh, in this new gold rush of large models, uh, they, they demand uh, immense amount of uh, this specialized processing, making companies like uh, NVIDIA really uh, the, the kings of this hardware revolution. And on the other side, uh, apart from the training, the uh, actual revolution of the last few years is the uh, introduction in consumer hardware in every phone and now coming to laptops and desktops uh, in, in, in part because of Apple. Uh, of uh, dedicated uh, neural processing cores in uh, systems on a chip that help mm -hmm. uh, your phones and computers actually apply those uh, complex machine learning systems in an ener energy efficient way. I want to come, it's kind of, it's wild how that's kind of come full circle, right? In that everything went off into the cloud. Are there any specific applications you'd mentioned that maybe rely more on local processing than cloud processing? Uh, in terms of what people might be familiar with? Yeah, I mean, uh, at this point, uh, for, I mean, coming back to, to this mm -hmm. recording session as audio is, mm -hmm. is back uh, being processed live on device. Mm -hmm. uh, when you make calls, when you take pictures, everything that is being manipulated in terms of uh, image processing, audio signal processing, uh, this this is now being done on device very efficiently, and uh, it's also going to be something that's going to happen to a lot of the use cases that currently rely on uh, the cloud uh, for large models were, that were introduced in the past two years. Uh, so there's there's definitely uh, work that has been done into packaging those models. Those were, your equivalents to your GPTs and, and those uh, very uh, well-known, very large uh, models uh, mm -hmm. into uh, uh, size formats that could be uh, packaged in uh, single devices and used on device. I think this is really interesting when you look at cases like Apple, I think. Is, I mean, Apple is the first company I think of, right? Because they're the ones who have their own hardware and have a lot of their own applications running on there. I think even just that I, I was reading within the past couple of days about Apple's investment in AI. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know to what extent you would agree with this, Thomas, but I, do you think Apple got caught flat footed in terms of their investment in AI and where other big tech companies are at right now? I think, as I mentioned, they're definitely at the forefront when it comes to the hardware and the addition of uh, neural processing units and their chips. Uh, the, most of the work that, that's being done to uh, uh, package uh, large models uh, is being done on their M2 uh, family of chips uh, by people who have MacBooks. Uh, so that's definitely something where they're uh, ahead of the pack. But in terms of uh, products that use uh, uh, AI and specifically the, the latest trends in AI, 
they're definitely um, behind the curve in releasing those to the public. But it also appears from Apple to be an artifact of their strategy when it comes to those products, which is to have as yeah. much as possible of the uh, processing happen on device. Uh, this is according uh, to their kind of like They're the ones focus on privacy. Uh, as, as This a, is their yeah. pitch to the consumer, uh, right? They want to be known as a privacy yes. prioritizing brand compared to exactly. You know, um, you know, some of their competition. Yeah. And so I think they, and I think that that's kind of the, the why, uh, they, they were waiting, uh, for this to be technically feasible before, uh, introducing some of those features, which I think they have started to as a, of iOS 17, uh, they have, uh, revamped their, uh, autocorrect using, uh, more NLP techniques that they hadn't used before. But there remains, there's an article actually today about internal doubts in, in terms of their uh, large language model units and the, and the output that they've had compared to your open AIs and the, the FAIR group at Facebook or Google's uh, own different uh, AI groups. Yeah, I, I was just like, to put this into context, I, there was a, a story that came out that Apple's spending a, a billion dollars. I mean, I don't know. Apple spends so much money on everything that I, I the, these numbers, I don't know what they add up to in the long term, like, but a, a billion dollars. And I've seen there's a story from The Verge uh, from about a month ago that said Apple's spending millions of dollars a day on their AI investment. So, uh, yeah, but, but let's uh, let's put that into context against companies that depend on very large uh, data servers for for what's going on. Um, who would you put into that bucket for, for companies that depend on that? Um, at this point, it's going to be uh, the three cloud hyperscalers um, mm -hmm. who are very involved in uh, deploying systems that can uh, assure in this new era of AI. Uh, so those are Microsoft, uh, Amazon, and Google mainly. Uh, who have the global footprint and are bearing the brunt of uh, enterprise renewed interest into AI, and they are the ones deploying those massive systems, uh, buying all buying up all those GPUs and putting them to use for uh, other companies to uh, explore and expand their uh, AI infrastructure. I, I, I'd ask. Uh, we're doing this podcast for a, a really general audience, you know, people who are working and encountering AI in different ways. I, a lot of people know these names in terms of you know, big tech companies, right? Uh, when you say hyperscalers, could you explain just a little bit what, what that means? Yeah, that means those those companies are uh, now uh, kind of the backbone structure uh, of the global internet in terms of data centers, in terms of computers uh, that they uh, make available to any business that needs uh, compute. Uh, and so they are the ones really... Uh, uh, building and maintaining the physical part uh, of the internet and of uh, big tech. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that has a lot of associated co costs uh, in terms of energy, uh, in terms of water use, and, and, and those are, are uh, coming under the spotlight again because of this, uh, the tremendous needs of those new AI systems in those departments. I, I wanted to highlight that. Sarah, sorry. Oh, I just wanted to note that um, what Thomas is, is highlighting has a lot of business value because these are companies that uh, smaller, medium-sized technology companies are using for a lot of infrastructure support where they already have relationships with Amazon or Google. 
And what that means is that what uh, was happening a few years ago, say six, seven years ago with data lakes and data infrastructure, now we are seeing uh, large language models taking on another line item with these companies. So if you have an existing commercial relationship and you had been using them for cloud services, it does make sense from a business perspective to say, hey, we also have this large language model solution and we can easily- It's an add-on. We can, we can easily uh, charge you for that as well. So um, this, is, this is one of the reasons why there is this current space race as there was with, um, with compute and, and uh, processing between the cloud services. Well, it, you know, listeners have websites. Listeners use exactly. Amazon Web Services yeah. or Google Cloud as well. You know, I mean, if you use Google's suite of Office apps in Google Drive, exactly. you've probably encountered some pitches for, hey, would you like a little AI with that? You know, you could open up Gmail and see, would you like some yeah. AI like suggestions for your language and typing, right? Like Amazon has a wealth. If anybody, yeah, you know, I say this as somebody who's used yeah. Amazon's AWS menagerie on many occasions, you can't jump in, try to find something there without encountering a supermarket of extra services and add-ons and things. And AI is certainly part of that that ecosystem. Exactly. And as you've engaged, as we all have, as many of our listeners have over the years, say with your Gmail account, this has been the data that's been used to, to build these large language models. So, you know, from a hyperscaler perspective, they are really doing uh, bottom to top, collecting the data, building the LLM, having the cloud infrastructure, selling selling you what you need next, and it's a it's a very powerful position to be in. It also shows how Microsoft and OpenAI have uh, you know symbiotic relationship. I think that's an interesting relationship, but the value of um, being a part of an existing solution and having that be, um, would you like some AI with that? Yeah. That's great. I, you know, I, I mean, I think to me, the simplest way to think about it is these server farms, the cloud infrastructure has evolved beyond just a place to store data to a place where it's processed and things happen and you can get answers back instead of having a computer on premises doing something right. And now you have the actual data training uh, the the tra- like training off of the data of these LLMs happening at these places, right? So, I, you know, the big one that was in the news this year, and this is where I wanted to bring Thomas in to comment, was uh, Microsoft situation. So, I mean, could you explain what was Microsoft's relationship with uh, OpenAI going into this instance of the, uh, the the water usage making the news? In Iowa, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, so Microsoft is is the main uh, financial backer of OpenAI uh, to the tune at this point of uh, about ten to twelve billion dollars of over uh, the next the last few years. Big investor, big investor, strategically. Uh, it is yes, uh, 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 and also is is tr- the, the, that particular deal is also structured uh, in order to make Microsoft a, a tremendous amount of revenue over the next ten years as. Uh, OpenAI is actually supposed to be um, uh, reimbursing that investment uh, using their revenue and their profit. Um, and so uh, what it means is also that all of OpenAI infrastructure, almost all of it, is deployed using uh, Microsoft's hyperscaler, uh, as mentioned, uh, data infrastructure. And as we see that 
they have integrated and started to integrate uh, OpenAI's products into many of their own products. Uh, their Teams, uh, enterprise communication products. Uh, their, the whole Microsoft Office suite, The whole right? Office Not suite. Not just Teams. Yeah. Uh, and famously, their Bing search engine, where apparently they beat out Google in integrating uh, search uh, using a large language model. But when you look at search, uh, I mean, those are this is the one where we kind of have numbers is that a um, non-smart, quote unquote, search request on Google uh, consumes about 100 times to 1,000 times less energy than a smart one that would be routed through one of those large models. And so uh, what it means is uh, because Microsoft is a public company and they send out more disclosures than some private companies like OpenAI, we can actually gauge the actual impact of deploying AI at scale from their disclosures. And it seems that it, it has made their energy use in data centers skyrocket to the tune where it actually was reported that they are thinking about deploying uh, nuclear energy uh, as a, a, an aid in terms of having uh, sufficient capability to uh, sustain uh, their usage for data centers uh, using uh, non-carbon uh, emitting energy. And uh, when it comes to water use, there's apparently uh, in Iowa, which is a state where they have a large footprint because energy costs are lower and there are some tax incentives for uh, the data industry to be in, they have actually, uh, I, I think year over year, uh, their, ener their water use uh, for the data centers went up in the 30 to 35%. Uh, which is putting a strain. I said 34% was what I saw. This was on Microsoft's own report yep. that they put out themselves stating this, which is really, it's really fascinating to me in the context of their, I want to get the term right that they use. They want to be, essentially Microsoft has a goal by 2030 to be renewing more water in the environment than they are using from it for purposes like this. I, I hope I'm characterizing that exactly there. So it's crazy. If you look at the bump in the amount of water that was being used over the summer ahead of the training completing on that latest version of chat GPT, there was a, there was a spike yeah. you know, for the, for the year. And that runs contrary, you know, at least when I look at those numbers, it looks like it runs contrary to this goal they have by 2030. Now, my question is, uh, are they always going to be training this much or is this something where we see the spike and it goes down or as these queries are coming in and users start doing things with chat GPT more, assuming yep. they, they use it more um, is, is would, should we expect that that is a, an increasing need over time? Um, there's two aspects to it. So on, on the training side, uh, these are uh, uh, essentially taking the, entire uh, corpus of text uh, and associating media on the internet and uh, cramming that uh, for weeks or months on end on as many uh, computers as possible. So that's uh, where you see that spike. It's like an, an enormous endeavor. Um, but uh, that's something that hasn't been done since uh, GPT-4. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, there were calls at the time by many prominent uh, scientists to uh, kind of put a hold on uh, any uh, more improvements or any smarter models. 
uh, for six months and six months have passed and OpenAI has made mm -hmm. no move to train another version of their uh, GPT models because I believe that uh, the uh, amount of data required simply does not exist to uh, create a, a significantly smarter model. Uh, and for the uh, cost that it does uh, cost to train one, uh, there's no return on investment at this juncture in terms of making a smarter one. Yeah, Sarah, I don't know if you could speak to that yeah. challenge, but because I think it's really interesting and I don't think the general public probably understands what's required to change a next version that meets the standards of what they would want a next version to be. Um, but Well, there's, yeah. there's a couple of things at play here. I, I think first we have to look that 2022 OpenAI lost $540 million. They have announced some numbers recently that show they are not only cash positive, but in a different phase. So maybe we should look at this from a business perspective, which is they were in the training, uh, data training and, and architecture phase. They were building these systems and the data that they used is now somewhat stale. But since we've adopted large language model tools, we've now created a bunch of data online that is synthetic, that is the output of these systems. So OpenAI and other challengers have this uh, decision to make about, as Thomas said, are they going to get significantly better returns, especially if right now we are trying to figure out as scientists how to only train previously unseen data. Now, when you take a step back and say, we want, uh, we also want to do this efficiently, and and I like the the concern about water and the concern about power. You know, it's almost the what is the carbon neutral water equivalent because they're trying to create some sort of um, approach where they can measure and say, hey, we are trying to be net uh, neutral or net positive. I think that the change in what OpenAI and some of its competitors are probably going to do moving forward has a lot to do with a paper Thomas and I um, uh, revisited recently that, but it was, uh, we don't have a moat. And that has to do with changes in architectural approaches to inference and uh, reasoning about the-, the You're talking um, about a moat for open AI. For uh, a moat for Google and, um, who was it, Thomas? It was out of Google, but it was talking about the main challengers to OpenAI not having protection, business protection from their improvements. Oh, and one of the reasons is because Meta had had their Llama model released and there was a lot of open source work being done that showed there could be improvements that would lead to, for example, Apple's on-device LLM implementations, but also showed that this that they are in they are in a true race for uh, LLM dominance. Could you speak to that a little bit, Thomas? Yeah, it's a uh, um, and it, it, it will also circle back to this this uh, uh, dual uh, structure of training and inference. Uh, so the training costs a lot uh, uh, at one time over a few weeks or months, and is uh, uh, extremely uh, uh, energy demanding uh, and compute demanding. Uh, 
infer <coughs> inference, which is the day-to-day -day use of those systems once they've been created, uh, that's becoming cheaper. Uh, we're still in the realm where it's uh, still 100 times or even 10, 20, 50 times more um, uh, costly to use than a normal uh, uh, compute request. Um, but those systems are uh, daily, daily uh, becoming less and less expensive to use. And that's in part because of that release, uh, that first initial and then subsequent releases by Facebook sparked uh, uh, an ecosystem of open source uh, optimizers and researchers uh, who have done uh, great work to um, port and package those models uh, coming back to the fact that they're working with the uh, M2 uh, series of chips and, and, and putting them even on, on phones, that on Qualcomm um, chips. And so that, that part is really what has been um, kind of the thorn in the side of the commercial players who are selling API uh, access to their models and who have put on most of the investment in creating the latest state-of-the-art models like GPT. Uh, is that the OS, uh, the open source models that are now uh, usable by pretty much anyone with a computer or even soon with a phone uh, are good enough. They're not state of the art. They're not the best that's been produced, but their output is good enough for most tasks. And that's going to be I'd love to, could could you maybe name some few a few? Oh, yeah. I'd love to uh, so get a better uh, handle on this. Uh, I, you know, I I I, under, I think everybody probably knows about traditionally what open source versus proprietary types of software are in the context of AI specifically. And I, I know this connects, as you said, back with um, you know what's going on on premises versus in the cloud and what's going on on the you know these servers that you know big tech companies have. How would you characterize the relationship between the open source side of what's there in AI right now versus, uh, you know, the Microsoft's and OpenAI's and uh, Google's and Amazon's out there? Uh, well, at this point, the open source side is kind of the far west in terms of uh, academia, individual researchers, companies, startups uh, are all uh, competing um, there's a platform that's well known in the data science circles that's called Hugging Face that basically lists thousands, at this point, I think tens of thousands of different open source uh, machine learning models. Uh, and of those, uh, I think there's about maybe five or 10 new every week at this point uh, coming from uh, research labs and from universities and from uh, private companies. Um, and they're all building on each other. Uh, they're all uh, improving really fast from new techniques that are developed uh, daily. Um, and uh, more importantly, they're cheap to use and deploy. And they're uh, basically free to use for anyone who has access to computers. Well, I think that Thomas is highlighting one of the two ways that the last year has shown a real democratization of artificial intelligence. The first being the user experience of playing with a chat interface that was LLM-based. That, that was liberating to many folks, eye-opening. It allowed them to, to have a real uh, sensory experience with what this technology could provide. And that was far more popular. You could say it's an entertainment tool, but it was far more popular as a product than many practitioners of AI like Thomas and myself had expected. 
But then the release by Meta of the Llama model produced a second wave. Now, these are, maybe they were the same people, people who initially got interested a, a months earlier or found this new technology and said, hey, I, I want to learn more. But what it also did is allowed academics specifically to get more involved because one of the challenges in recent years has been large language models are so expensive to uh, produce that many academic institutions have not been able to keep up with um, talent, that keeping young talent because researchers have said, hey, I want to go work with these hyperscalers who have the support, the financial support and infrastructure to really be experimenting with these massive data sets and very powerful systems. And so I, I think that um, Thomas is highlighting, especially with Hugging Face, these communities that are working on challenges in an effort for it not just to be a two horse race. You know, this is going to be a more dynamic environment and they're, and more exciting to watch perhaps. And I think that they, they accept this at least publicly. I, I know I've seen uh, Sam Altman comment on the uh, open, open source side of the AI space. And I, I think they see a real utility for this. I, it, I'd like to maybe hear some more from you, Thomas, about uh, Llama 2 and Meta's approach. Uh, Sarah and I are going to get into this in a, in a, in a later episode about this uh, transparency report that Stanford uh, researchers recently put out there, um, where they tried to come up with a model for ranking how transparent these LLMs are. You know, they were, they were looking at these really, really big models, um, what they call foundation models. Right. And it, it was interesting that even like Meta's Llama 2 came in first place among all of these in the in the in these 10, but it still had a 54 percent score. Yeah. Which, you know, you, you really it, it's kind of score that if you're in a college class, you'd really <laughs> hope for a bell curve to lift you up um, if, if you got something like that. Right. Yeah, it's it's so you maybe could you tell me a little bit more about Meta's approach and why yep. and why the open source uh, perspective from them is is relevant to this conversation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Meta has been uh, well. The AI group at Meta, the uh, Fair F A I R, uh, has been at the forefront of uh, of these uh, research on large models for a while now. Um, and so their their approach to uh, openness, or at least to releasing those models uh, with some openness uh, as to how they were made, as to their uh, structure. Um, and how they operate has been uh, very, very transparent compared to the other players. Not transparent uh, uh, in absolute, as you see, uh, this 54% this score. Um, but uh, it all, the cynical view is that it stems from the uh, entire industry's surprise at the release of ChatGPT back uh, in 2020, late 2022. Um, and how much of a shock was that? I mean, how how much was did this catch people off guard? Were people prepared for it? I, in the headlines, it was definitely sensationalized. But from your perspective, and I, Sarah, I, this is some a place I'd like to hear from you too. How big of a surprise was it, really? Uh, it was a huge surprise. Um, it was rushed out, uh, as I think now has been reported. It was an incomplete large language model that got attached to a chat interface and pushed to the wide public overnight. 
um, which nobody at Microsoft or Google or Facebook or any of the big AI shops had uh, envisioned uh, was a possibility, uh, let alone try to productivize. And that led to this rush of every company uh, releasing their own products, uh, famously Google uh, uh, building Bard in a very short amount of time and trying to get it out there as fast as possible. And Facebook themselves, Meta, sorry, themselves uh, releasing Llama, the first uh, uh, version uh, as uh, open source and then subsequently actually leaked uh, online and became the baseline for open source large models. And uh, they kind of, so the cynical view is that Meta kind of stumbled into being this champion of open source as a, a rushed reaction to OpenAI's strategic move. Um, but they, uh, to their credit, they doubled down on it with Llama 2 and, uh, and the paper, uh, that accompanied the release of Llama 2 is one of the most, uh, transparent look into what makes, uh, a large language model, uh, from the industry perspective and, and how, uh, how to build one, um, and lift the veil on some of the data used, uh, uh, to train it. And I think that's where most improvement can happen. That's where the score can go way uh, higher is to really, really um, be transparent about the data that was used in the training of those models, because there is still a lot of uh, a, a gray area there that companies are very shy uh, because uh, there's a lot of legal issues about the type of uh, text, uh, even copyrighted uh, text that's being used to train those models. I want to note that, like, like I said, we'll get into this a little bit deeper in a subsequent episode that, that we're going to do and already have planned because I, I think this, the, the whole rubric of, you know, how do you define transparency and what people should aspire to at these companies is uh, a work in progress, right? There are, there are limited regulations or laws that apply to what they need to do. So I, I, this report was most interesting to me just in terms of starting the conversation in a coherent way about what standards are being observed or not being observed right now um, as, as we look ahead to how things should be, right? So, I, and I know we're over the half hour mark, which is why I want to make sure to get one more question on this open source front into you, Thomas. Um, I know we, we talked about Hugging Face a little bit. Uh, another player that I, I was just reading about this morning is this uh, Zen ML, which is wanting to be an open source option, like what do they say? They want to be the glue that makes open source AI tools stick together, uh, as TechCrunch described them here. Um, what, who do you think are the most interesting players from an open source perspective in, a, in AI right now? Um, so some of them... Maybe you could just say a little bit about what, why. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the most uh, prolific groups in terms of uh, academia uh, is uh, the uh, University of, um, uh, I think it's uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, oh, sorry, the, the uh, UAE uh, with the uh, Falcon family of models. United Arab Emirates. Yes. Um, yeah, that, fascinating. That's been one of the most prolific groups and they've, they've done a lot of tremendous work in releasing large models uh, that, that are very uh, easy to use and deploy. Um, there's this new group out of France, uh, famously raised a lot of money back in the summer, 
uh, called Mistral, uh, who uh, came out uh, very strongly with an open source model as their first offering. And they've been uh, on top of the trending charts on Hugging Face for the past few weeks um, and with uh, uh, models adapted from this Mistral, uh, one called Zephyr. Uh, then again, yeah, a, a lot of uh, tremendous work by Facebook. Um, and uh, yeah, those are those are the main groups right now that I would highlight. It's in uh, open source. Let, let me ask you as we kind of uh, get on get on the off ramp here. I know we're, we're approaching the, the forty minute mark, and I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. But um, what what are you most optimistic about uh, in AI, and where do you see um, the best outcomes? at this moment in time from what's happening. Obviously there's a big conversation right now between what companies should do. You know, there's these, these environmental issues we're talking about and this impact uh, on, you know, these you know, server operations. When you think about the state of AI, AI and LLMs right now, um, what are you most optimistic about? Yeah. What, what I'm most optimistic about uh, right now is um, <clears throat> multimodal models, which means uh, models that are able to work not only via text, uh, but also understand uh, pictures, understand videos, understand audio, and react using pictures, videos, and audio, kind of in a seamless way. Uh, there's a, a, it, the uh, research on those is advancing very, very rapidly. Um, and where I hope uh, things go is, we talked about the environmental impact of AI uh, currently and. Uh, as it's being deployed everywhere and for everything, I hope we get at some point a kind of return to reason um, because there's no point in for most of the things we use the internet for these days, um, most of them don't require us to go through one of those large models. Uh, they're being piped right now through those large models just to see if it's better or if the output is marginally more efficient uh, for 50 times the cost. But I hope we'll, we'll see in the next few months, two years, a return to reason as to which use cases do necessitate the use of large models and which absolutely do not and can, can make do with the traditional methods that we've been using for a while now. It's a great question. It's a great question. I think it's a good way to frame it too because you know it's it's as we look at these things and people are deploying these services you know cost is the number one thing on cost and efficiency are the two biggest factors but there are there's a whole host of these other categories in that basket and i i, I do I, I wonder which of those will become most considered uh, in people's you know decision making uh, especially as we're talking about i think enterprises mainly in your your, your assessments here well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and thanks for testing everything out for the first time. Thank you for uh, having me. It was a pleasure. We, we, we've got some more great guests coming. And like, like I said, it was nice thank to start you, this Thomas. off with a friend. Uh, really appreciate yeah. your perspective. Thank you, Brian and Sarah. Have a good one. That's a wrap on this week's episode of the AI Artifacts podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you'll visit us at AIartifacts.net. There, you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. This show is produced by Brian Warmoth and Sarah Luger. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States license.